Welcome to Shed Life. All right, Kevin, how are you, mate? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very good, man. I've got to say, it's an absolute honor to have you on this pod because um, uh, I know you're a well-seasoned podcaster and um, I'm a bit of a newbie myself. So I want to thank you, first of all, for coming on to this, uh, into the shed. Appreciate it yeah. so much, man. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome, awesome. Um, if you don't mind, like, I've read your bio before on uh, Democracy at Work and you just seem like a very, very intriguing guy with a very intriguing sort of background professionally and, uh, you know, so I, I, I wonder if you can tell us more about your background. Yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of different, it's a kind of a multifaceted thing. I think it's very hard to be something like a, a Renaissance man or a polymath in these, in, in these really hyper division of labor, you know, hyper specialized kind of, kind of days. But I tried to, you know, dip my hand in a number of different things. I was lucky enough to have um, very much like do-it-yourself kind of parents. So I learned a lot of things about even just like building houses, how to like deal with plumbing issues, how to fix my car, you know, very kind of basic, like even survival skills, how to make a fire, like all those kinds of things. And that got me interested just in a lot of different things. And I had, you know, a few people in my life spark certain interests and a few events in my life that have kind of led me to, to where I am. Something like my, my grandfather was a fighter pilot uh, for the U.S. Air Force in the in Vietnam War. So because of that, I've always been really interested in like flight and I've taken flying lessons and learning how to fly. I have a, a YouTube channel that focuses on like space missions and I'm uh, currently in a group right now that's thinking about the how, what kind of political structures we really want to have on uh, in a Martian colony, like both in a small small one and a big one. So there's the, like that kind of whole trajectory of my life. There's the whole academic side, and I, I've collected a few degrees. I've got an undergraduate degree in philosophy and political science. I, I originally didn't want to go to college at all. I, I learned how to play the drums when I was a kid, and by the time I was 12, I got my first like drum set. And I just wanted to be in bands. I, I wanted to be like a punk. I wanted to be Travis Barker. I wanted to be a punk rock drummer, <laughs> like famous for the rest of my life. And so I didn't plan to go to college. I went to a music school to, to learn how to record. And so one of the other things that I do in my spare time is like record and play in different groups. So there's like this, there's like a music kind of side to me. Um, then I, but I, I did eventually go to college and I, I really loved college and I loved like learning and I got really focused in like philosophy. I've always been interested in politics. So I did a double mass, a double degree in political science and philosophy. Uh, and, uh, I graduated college in 2008, right. As the first, as the, as the first recession, a big recession of my life, uh, hit. And so it was very hard to get a job and I had a philosophy degree. So, uh, which is not usually the quick way to get a job. Um, so I went back to school and got a master's of public administration. I learned how to be a good government bureaucrat. Um, but of course, by the time I tried to get jobs in there, uh, the government had laid off, you know, everybody, everybody could, it was, you know, they had, had wiped the floor clean. And so there was no real room to get anywhere. And so I randomly, uh, got a job as a paralegal at a law firm, just sort of doing, you know, like a nurse to a doctor doing all the real work and not getting any of the real money. And so I, uh, I did that for, for many years and realized like, this is basically the end of my, of my career. I'm going to be like a paralegal forever, unless I go to law school. 
So I made the decision to go to law school. And of course, in law school, being who I am academically, I didn't study something like tax or, or something, you know, really that would definitely get me a job. But I studied international humanitarian law and human rights. So the law of war and what law and like what you can't you do to people to screw up their lives, which, of course, is, again, not a fast track to a job. It's very difficult <laughs> to do. And so I ended up, you know, I work as in a legal technology company. So we're um, trying to use uh, AI and machine learning and different kinds of advanced uh, co computational models to be able to read, figure out how to do the law, how to practice the law, and to also allow a lot of people who are in the United States just totally shut out from accessing the law because it's so expensive. Lawyers are a ridiculously expensive commodity and a lot of people just can't afford one. And so if they get sued or something happens, they don't have the ability to go to a lawyer. And so we're trying to work on making it more accessible to, to, to everybody. And so uh, that, you know, sort of the, the work, you know, where did, where, what did I go to school for and stuff like that? And like, what did I do for a career? And then uh, there's this whole other side, which is the, the political angle. And so since I was about 16 or 17 years old, I, uh, I, was always on the sort of more radical side and very much kind of libertarian was always against authority did not like uh you know didn't like being told what to do um and but i also um realized the fault of like american libertarianism in the sense that like the, the free market is also authoritarian and so i learned and and sort of got introduced to marxist ideas and sort of on that so that there's this whole marxist part of me which is Reading, doing a lot of the reading, which intersects with the school and, uh, you know, studying philosophy, I was able to study and actually study for my school Marx and the like Marxist, like philosophical mm -hmm. tradition and stuff. And so, um, but it also translates into doing actual political work. And so working on campaigns, I, I worked for Tim Walls, who is now the governor of Minnesota um, at his, when he was a congressman and stuff. And so we're doing some mainstream politics and then some not so mainstream politics. So getting arrested for, um, you know, amazingly got arrested for feeding uh, homeless people in a park in Florida because what? that was, uh, yeah, it was against the law to, fe to feed people, yeah, to feed people who couldn't eat. It was against the law and they arrested us to try to get us to not do it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's been instances of civil disobedience and other kinds of things that have gotten me sort of in trouble with the, the law, but I was also a part of Occupy um, and uh, sort of, you know, in the, in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, trying to find political solutions that would be on the more radical end. And for me, you know, learning about socialism and Marxism and stuff when I was younger, it was there. Nobody was a socialist or Marxist. You know, Bernie Sanders was just some random uh, congressman from Vermont that nobody heard about. You know, and so I felt very alone. And there wasn't really. It was a very small group of people. And to in this sort of change, especially to see Occupy and stuff like that. I mean, for me as like a an ardent communist, I was like, oh my God, Occupy is going to be the revolutionary force of our lifetime. Of course, I was wrong about that. And that, I think that's the, the general revolutionary experience is that you're constantly wrong. But it taught me a lot, and, and it, it was it, it was a really important experience about how you learn how to construct. You know, is consensus actually a good idea? What does democracy really mean? All of these really important questions were being discussed and tried to figure out. You know, during that period of time, and so it was it was ultimately a failure. But we learned a lot of really important lessons, and I think um, as we kind of approach the sort of dual in America, do the dual pandemic, Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, um, and then the whole police brutality issue just generally, 
I think that there's a lot of people waking up to um, just how, in some ways, just how violent the system is in its maintenance of power and how, uh, how illegitimate a system has to be to use violence in the way that it does to maintain itself. Like the whole idea of having democratic systems was to say, uh, this is, a, this is inherently justifiable so that we don't have to use force in order to like, you know, maintain power. And I think that, um, that I'm hoping to, and I've, I've been trying to sort of push the needle in terms of a lot of people's awakening to the, to the inherent violence of the system, that there's a really deep nature to this and that, that it relates to issues of capitalism and issues of class and how those, how in terms of, if you want to talk about intersectionality, that's great. But if that doesn't end up at a kind of class intersection, we're not necessarily speaking a language that'll get us anywhere. And so I think that there's, there's, a lot of different facets to me from just like thinking it's cool to fly an airplane and wanting to go up and, and watch a shuttle launch to really getting down to the nitty gritty about what, how can we fix all of the social problems um, to thinking about, can we have a whole different society on Mars that doesn't have these problems and just kind of um, at the same time, having to fix my toilet when it breaks and, you know, having to take care of my uh, three month old son. So that that's this new component of my life too, where, uh, now I'm, I'm a father, and so I have this whole other. So it's like, you know, pilot, lawyer, musician, Marxist, researcher, uh, father. I think that those, <laughs> those kind of things. Um, my my wife, yeah, my wife jokingly one time I said, yeah, you know, I could, I know a bit about rocket science, and I know how to fix your plumbing, and I can do everything in between. And she thought that was such a smart ass comment that she got it put onto a mug. And so every now and then I got to drink tea or something out of a coffee cup that makes fun of myself. But yeah. <laughs> Man, so that's, that's yeah, that's, that's as good as an introduction as I can give, I guess. Uh, that's a quality introduction. Might be one of the best introductions we've had in this podcast, mate. That is quality. <laughs> um, I've got a couple of questions from that. So I'm kind of intrigued to understand. Um, how did you sort of, sort of obtain this path towards, like you said, socialist or Marxist ideas per se? Like what was the, what was the, was there sort of um, a key moment in your sort of, in your life which made you think, yes, this is, this seems to be the right track, but I need to go down. Cause it is such a, it's such an intriguing concept, but it's not, yeah. it's, it's really misunderstood by so many people. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm a, a avid believer of it. I'm just intrigued mm -hmm. by the idea. Like, you know, yeah, what, what sort of brought you towards that sort of point? Uh, so there, there's like, there's a sort of story that I, that I have in terms of how I, how I really got the real introduction. And then there's the kind of milieu in which it, it existed. And so I was, uh, I was about 15 years old and I, I grew up in a, very, a small town um, in the middle of America. And so, you know, very very white, very sort of safe, very uh, sort of insulated from a lot of things. It, it's considered flyover country in the United States. People just fly over it because they're going from sure. one coast to the other coast. <laughs> so uh, I, and you know, this is like the, uh, this is 2003 or so, right, right about the time that the Iraq war is happening. 
you know, the United States has been attacked in 9-11 and I was in high school when that happened. And I remember my teacher telling me that I, I had to go sign up for the, the army because this is like our Pearl Harbor moment where we were attacked by the enemy. We're going to go start a world war and fight for, you know, America and all this kind of stuff. Well, so your and teacher I, actually told you. you got oh, to sign yeah, up. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Even though teachers, there's no sort of draft system at the time. No, you know, it, that's, it's a citizen army, right? So it's your responsibility to go sign oh, up. And if you don't, wow. if you don't, then you're, then you're, you know, a coward and you're un-American and you're unpatriotic. And then you oh, also wow. don't get, you know, in America, we have this huge sycophancy about our, our troops, you know? And so every time you see a troop, you have to thank them for their service and all this kind of stuff. We, we have a really problematic relationship with our military. Let's just sort of put it that way. Fair, fair, fair. Um, the, uh, so that's a bit of the context. And so, I'm, I was always kind of, again, like into libertarianism and I very much consider myself a sort of anarchist. I just thought that the government was like the problem and like government is the big thing and whether it's commie or ours or Nazi or anything, it's always the government that's the problem. So I was just very like anti-government, very anti-establishment. And I was in my English class and we had to do an Oxford style debate. So propositions and um, pros and cons and the whole like and votes beforehand, votes afterwards. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I was I, I always felt like I was a kind of a smart kid and I was a bit of a smart ass. And so I thought I'm going to argue for something that's like totally crazy that people are going to think I'm crazy for. And. I'm going to win because I'm smart and I can, and I'm, I know my rhetoric and I can, I can convince these people of just about anything. So I thought about it for a second and I basically was like, Hmm, should I argue that we should go Nazi or we should go communist? Because my education told me that that was, those were the same things that there really isn't that much of a difference between socialism and communism, that they're both tyrannical. They're both, you know, they both cause wars. They both kill, you know, millions of people. So for all intents and purposes, what's the difference? So I just sort of flipped a coin and picked and, and decided that my, the motion I was going to go for is that America should adopt a communist form of government. And, uh, and uh, I had to do research about what, like how I was going to have to argue for communism and I, I was always used to arguing against communism because it's a big state and all this kind of stuff. Mm. So I picked up the Communist Manifesto and I actually read it. And I was like, well, this, this is different than what I under, this is like <laughs> super philosophical and like a historical and what's this? And so then I, and then I read uh, Friedrich Engels' uh, Socialism Utopian and Scientific, which is still to this day, if, if anyone is wanting an introduction into into Marxist ideas, just read Engels' Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific. It does a great job of going, I mean, I read it, I just read it on my podcast because it's not very long. It takes like maybe mm, an hour and a half. It's a short like, one, yeah, yeah. It's like an hour or something. And it's written very beautifully. You know, Engels spoke perfect German, perfect French, perfect English. He could, it was just it was amazing. And uh, I I read that and I was like, yeah, this is way different. And like, this actually sounds... Like, like this debate's going to be easy because this stuff sounds awesome. And so I read a few more, like I read Michael Harrington, who's a very important American uh, socialist from like the 60s, who was just, who wrote an essay, What is Socialism? Um, in, uh, Einstein wrote a, what is, what, Why Socialism? Uh, and, um, and so I, I read a few of these sort of pamphlets to get an idea as to how, how you'd argue for socialism. And what I had been taught was that socialism was this, barbaric idea that involved that it basically ended up in human slavery 
and that uh, you know would kill half of the population, and it would just be where the government would own and control everyone's lives, and everyone would be in utter misery. Like that's what I learned. And what I found out was that actually there's this anti-authoritarian streak that runs all the way through Marxism, that the end goal of, of communism is a stateless, classless, moneyless society, and that, um, and that what, we're, what the whole goal of socialism was, was to recognize the oppression in the system that existed and to say, well, we should be able to do better than that. And here's a way to do better than that, which is easy to argue when everybody kind of looks around and goes, yeah, the system's kind of fucked up. It doesn't really work that well. And like, there's all these problems, like something's wrong with the system. That's pretty, that's, a, that's, I think a lot of people sort of recognize there's something wrong, but, uh, but there's a lot of people that just from that take a nihilist position where they just go, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Whereas a lot the socialists uh, said, no, 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 there's something we can do about it. And there's this whole philosophical tradition as to, as to like where it comes from as to why we think we can do something about it. And we know who can make the change to do something. And we have this whole battle plan and like we have a good analysis of why the system is failing. And so like, if you understand the analysis, you understand where you need to go and we can get to a future that it looks a lot better. That's not utopian. That's the best thing about Ingalls's utopian and scientific socialism. He says, we're not utopians, man. We're not trying to fix all the world's problems. We're just trying to make it a little bit better. We're trying to fix like a big problem. And that's the, that's the ultimate division of classes in society, the haves and the have-nots. And so for me, that, that spoke to me. And I, and I went, this debate's going to be easy. And so we had the debate where the other side argued that the same kind of bullshit that everybody argues, that it kills millions of people and that it's never worked and show me a socialism that, it, that worked and all this kind of stuff. And I just came back and said, like, they don't know what socialism is. Like, mm. this is what socialism means. And it's amazing. Essentially, from that time when I was 15 until now, and I'm, I'm almost 35, so for 20 years, I've essentially been arguing the same thing, that basically most people don't know what socialism is. They think it's something that, it, that is, is actually its opposite, and there are good reasons within the sort of Marxist framework to understand why the experiments in socialism in the 20th century didn't work. And so you, 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 say, you basically have a layer that, that immediately takes, takes out that leg of the, the argument on the other side. Hey, they, they, they failed for very good reasons that you can understand through a Marxist perspective. Here's the Marxist perspective. And you can get, you know, I, it takes a little while to get, get it. And so if you want to go through that, we can. But like, you know, in terms of the debate, here's the actual like Marxist philosophical tradition. And here's the world they actually want to build. One where you get to be a part of making the decisions at your business, where all of your basic needs are taken care of so you don't have to worry about it so that if you lose your job you don't like no not know what you're going to be there's no homelessness no any of this like it's a freaking great world where you actually get to be free and decide for yourself and equality is a real thing because freedom equality and, and brotherhood the ideals of the french revolution aren't happening in the world and so all it is is, a, is the recognition that we could create a better system that would be able to actually achieve real freedom, real equality, and real fraternity among human beings. And mm. I, it was amazing. We took the, the vote, you know, at the beginning of the Oxford debate, you take a vote, how many people are in favor of the motion? And everybody was against the motion that we adopt a communist form of government, which I knew. And at the end of the debate, we took the, the vote again, and it was 100% the opposite way. Like oh, I, wow. convinced, I convinced wow. everyone in the class. And like, as much as wow. I wanted to say that was just because of my rhetorical skills, I, I knew that <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't just because I, I was smarter than everybody else. It wasn't that. There were real power to these ideas. And so for me, it immediately moved me from like a, just a sort of 
run-of-the-mill anarchist into what I, what I would still consider myself a sort of anarcho-socialist. I'm still very much worried about the role of the state and how the state can use police force to kill people and do all and like the monopoly on violence that the state has and all of the crit critics that like the critiques that anarchists have of the state I i'm in agreement with but i do think that uh especially having studied law and stuff like that that the state can be a very useful mechanism in order to get to like a classless society but who's in control of the state really matters and so uh you know you know the way the state run is run right now yeah it's totally crazy but um but it could be a whole lot better. And so after that debate, I spent, I spent years uh, researching and, and uh, you know, reading every bit of Marx that I could and not understanding a lot of it. I was still really young, you know, and I didn't totally understand all the different topics. But then I spent four years in, in my philosophy classes, like learning philosophy, which is basically how to think and how to construct arguments and how to, and, and then, and then sort of reread Marx and realized what was like, really good and some of the stuff that was like not actually good and like and kind of had began to have my own perspective and at the same time joined a lot of socialist joined a fair amount of socialist parties yeah. and got involved with other people who had known and had different experiences uh that sort of refined a bit of how i i thought about it and you know and still every time i talk to somebody you know the the um the my positions change and those kinds of things i i really do think like towards like what you're talking about why you're doing the podcast and stuff like that 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 as a as a sort of died in the wool marxist i will say that i think that the the society around you tends to shape your ideas a hell of a lot more than your ideas shape the society but dialogue has an immense power genuine goodwilled uh honest and uh open dialogue can have an amazing ability to change minds. Now it has to have those characteristics of like openness, honesty. You can't like, you can't just engage in like bad faith and do things like that. But a really good, genuine conversation uh, can really convince you, convince you that what you thought before was total bullshit. And there's, there were people who I had this whole perspective and I had a number of conversations and it, after it was just like, yeah, man, I was totally wrong. And like, I'm so happy that we had this conversation. And part of the reason I, I eventually, after getting involved in all of these different organizations, I found that a lot of the internal discussions within the organizations were very toxic and were very, um, they might help you learn a little bit about Marxism, but then it becomes this sort of reification and deification of certain people and certain ideas. And there's a lot of fetishizing of, of individuals and stuff like that and like regurgitating everything they say as if it's some kind of biblical thing, including Marx. People like quote Marx as if they're quoting the Bible, you know, and it's like, mm. oh my God, it's not the Bible, man, relax. It's, it's a theory <laughs> and you can, it, things change and, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I think that w after my, the last time I actually uh, withdrew from the party that I was in for certain, you know, political reasons, I decided, look, I, I need to have wider conversations with different people about a wide range of topics. So I started the Sensible Socialist podcast as a, as a way of trying to have those conversations with regular people about issues that matter, about things that are going on in a way that doesn't feel like it's so far removed that you don't know what anybody's talking about to kind of keep the things grounded and to communicate in a medium that people are, you know, using. And I think podcasts are a great way to have long or short conversations to express 
you know, ideas and to sort of get ideas out there. And I think there's so much misinformation about, about socialism in particular. I, I was really mm. worried about calling the podcast The Sensible Socialist because yeah. I know that socialism has a certain connotation. And there's going to be people who look at, especially the sensible socialist, sensible socialist name and say, that's an oxymoron. I mean, I've heard that, right? That you can't be smart in a socialist because socialism is stupid. You know, <laughs> I've heard that. And like, okay, maybe you won't listen to the podcast because it has socialism in it. But I think there's a lot of people, especially younger people, who are looking to get to get a bit more like what are these ideas and how, can we can we talk to people who don't seem crazy because I'll be honest with you there's a lot of crazy people on the left <laughs> you know I mean you go to any protest and there's like a, a group of people that you're just like I don't want to hang out with them at all like they're freaking weirdos and that's <laughs> totally true and so there's a certain amount of like turning off that that can happen to to the left and I, and I get that and so there's a certain sense of trying to just be like a normal person who yeah. has leftist ideas, who wants to talk to other normal people about what they're thinking about the world and having ah, you know, sure. even, dis yeah. even disagreements, you know? And so um, the way that I've, I've kind of thought that it would be best to both work through my own ideas and also allow other people and, and myself to express our ideas is to do it through a podcast. And so, uh, you know, a few years ago, I started that podcast and that's, mm. That's in many, like that and, and working a little bit, trying to start a new party in the United States, because I think we desperately need a labor party like you guys would have in, you know, in, we desperately need something like that. And, and there's lots sure. of problems with the labor party, but man, it's better than the Democratic Party. So that's yeah. the Lib Dems. We don't need that shit. Like we need a labor party. <laughs> so like, so um, aside from working on that, that kind of project, you know, on the down low, I've been doing the sensible socialist stuff too. Uh, try to raise awareness from for from younger people, you know, trying to get into it. No, fair, fair enough, man. That's really interesting stuff, man. You know, I, I, I was I was actually going to come 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 onto the sensible uh, socialist podcast itself, um, but before that, just from what you were saying, mm -hmm. I'm intrigued. Like this, this is a, uh, it might be a naive question, but I want to know, like, what is the difference? Like, if we're talking about, because everyone looks when when you when you say the word communism, for example. Mm -hmm. Everyone looks towards Russia, right? Yeah. In terms of historically. So how does it differ from Marxist ideas towards something like Lenin Leninism, Stalinism, and socialism? Like, yeah. there's so many, it, it just feels like all those kind of um, factions have completely different takes on, 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 on their own sort of ideologies and stuff. But they're sort of, they're sort of portrayed as one sort of nice, neat package, which is the enemy for yeah. whoever it may be, right? And I'm just intrigued you're sort of taking it because you did say there is a stigma based upon uh, socialism and that, that's probably, it's probably where it started from, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. So uh, like I did just say that, that you know, Marx, Marx isn't the Bible, but I, I'll make this analogy. I think it's, it's a lot easier to understand the Marxist left uh, as an analogy to Christianity. Um, you have a martyrdom complex where you, you have all these people who have died for the cause who then have this sort of anointed status. You have certain, uh, certain texts that become almost canonical that you have to kind of understand these basic ideas in order to kind of be in the club. You know, to be a Christian, you have to adopt a certain set of ideas. You know, Islam in some ways is even better, but like we'll use Christianity. I mean, I think there's a certain set of ideas that you, if you adopt them, you're a Christian. And it's the same kind of thing I think for in Marxism. Like if you kind of adopt certain ideas, you're a Marxist. And, um, you know, in general, so I would say Marxism is, is, the, is the umbrella. I think that all, like, I think 
to be fair, and I, some people will quibble with this, but all of the different isms within it will be will generally be deemed Marxist, right? And Marxism is just an analysis. It's a philosophical perspective that focuses on the the development of humanity throughout history by focusing on the productive forces in society, and and specifically who owns and controls them. Because if you look at who owns and controls the productive forces. Uh, you may be able to distinguish them from who actually operates the the the, the means of production we could call them, and so uh, the dynamic between the owners and controllers of the means of production and the people who operate the means of production will have a dynamic in terms of the the society and and acts as a sort of economic base in which there is a superstructure that we would call society built on top of, and so there's been different sort of historical moments or historical epochs in which. You have, uh, you know, sort of hunter-gatherer societies that are fairly egalitarian and there's not really means of production because it's subsistence. Then you kind of civilize, so you get agriculture and you have a sort of slave-based society where the slaves uh, operate the, the means of production. And then, uh, you know, you have a sort of per, uh, patrician class who own it and are able to vote and have democracy and things like that. Uh, and that sort of gives way to a feudal form that you have like serfs, and lords, lords are able to have, you know, land and serfs are tied to that land. So serfs use the means of production uh, and the lords own the mean, owns and control the means of production. And then that develops into a capitalist society where you have employers and employees with the same kind of dynamic. And so from the Marxist perspective is that what you see is that from, from the basically the moment of civilization until now, we have been in a situation of class dynamics, we'll call them. Marx called them class warfare, but you could call them class dynamics, where there are two different classes, though are generally two different classes. Sometimes they've been subdivided and stuff like that, but there's generally who owns and controls things and who doesn't. And that interaction has been throughout history. It changes, it's, the dynamics have changed, who's owned and controlled have changed in different periods of time because there have been these revolutionary moments when different groups of people are taking over as the sort of ruling class, the class that rules over the society and maintains the superstructure so the economic base can stay the same. And so uh, the, the, the critique that Marx has is that capitalism is simply a, another version of this class dynamic. And so we have employers and employees and it has, and the reason that we've had different versions of these class dynamics is because each system has internal contradictions that become apparent when technology changes. So as you, if you look through the history of humanity, technology changes and technology advances. And what happens is, is that the technology advances beyond the social system in which it uh, is invented in. And so it brings out all these contradictions. Oh, this new piece of technology doesn't fit well with our, with our structure. And so what happens is the new technology feeds into a revolutionary force that destroys the old structure and institutes a new one. And so that's happened a few different times from slavery to feudalism, from feudalism to capitalism. And there's no reason to think that capitalism is somehow the end of that because it's just another version of the class dynamics. It's got internal contradictions and it's incredibly innovative. And so it's going to innovate some kind of technology that is going to show all of its contradictions. And what uh, I think Marx, the, the position Marx had was that basically it had already kind of shown it, that, that industry is what brought capitalism in. And I think this is actually one of the things Marx got wrong, that capitalism is brought about by in, industrial development. Industrial development showed the contradictions of feudalism and helped spur on the rise of this new group of people who owned the, this new technological uh, productive forces. 
and they became the new ruling class, the bourgeoisie, the people who own the means of production. And, and so they, uh, the, I think Marx's position was that, uh, the, that the contradictions of capitalism are apparent in its operation. Uh, it has it, it, we, what we call the business cycle is for Marx an example of, of capitalism's failure because it isn't stable. It's a very unstable system where there are all kinds of incentives built into the system that cause it to overproduce and then go into a situation of crisis only to go back to overproduce again and go back into crisis. And it has huge costs to doing that. It is a very, in that sense, it's a very inefficient system, at least mm -hmm. at providing stability. It's, it's efficient in other ways, but only through this idea of like creative destruction and like high cost means of advancement. So it, from my view, what you see in capitalism, capitalism has developed things like the internet and microchip technology. That is showing capitalism's contradictions because we're making a situation where you could possibly get rid of all the workers and automate everything. And so if you don't have people who you pay to buy stuff, then nobody's gonna buy the stuff. And if nobody buys the stuff, you're gonna go into a crisis. And if there's no way out of that crisis, the system will eventually collapse. And that's kind of the Marxist position is that capitalism will basically inevitably collapse under its own weight because technology is going to continue to advance. So there's some inevitable moment in which technology will force the system to collapse and there needs to, and some new system will come mm. after that. From Marxist position, the, the interesting thing about capitalism is that this, the class divide it becomes stark. It's the, it's the only system in history where you basically only really have two classes. You don't have some people that like occupy this middle position as much as we talk about the middle class. That's really sure. a kind of phantom idea. Do you own a business or not? Now there's this middle class of people who own businesses and work at them. So there is this middle class, but the majority of people are not middle class people. The majority of the people are workers and there's a few people who own and control the, the means of production. So uh, for Marx, the idea was it's actually this working class who actually operates the, 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 uh, the means of production, who have the revolutionary capacity to, uh, to destroy the old system. It, it's, it's that which that capitalism develops that is actually, so for me, it's more the technology. For Marx, it was actually the proletariat itself, that capitalism creates this huge workforce that knows how to run everything, but then doesn't give it the power to do so. And so all you have to do is create a system in which the workers get together and find a way to take over the means of production so that they can all own it collectively. And that, would, that system we might call communism, right? And so the, the basic idea behind socialism is really just one sentence, worker ownership of the means of production. That's what socialism actually means. It doesn't mean Stalinism or anything like that, right? At, at a very base level, Socialism is just workers owning and controlling the means of production. I would say in a democratic way, but that's my, my addition, just because sure. I don't want it. You could run, you could have worker ownership under an authoritarian model. And I think democracy is the only legitimate way of actually making decisions uh, long-term that I get buy-in and all kinds of things. So there's that general perspective that there's something wrong with capitalism. Capitalism has these, these failures. The working class is gonna be the thing that is going to be the engine of revolutionary change. And so what we need to do is organize the working class. And Marx was even doing this in the International Working Men's Association and other things like actually trying to organize the working class to get together because if they all get together through strikes and different kinds of actions, they can transform the society by changing the base economic thing 
where and the 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 addition that Marx and, and uh, kind of has as part of this is that the cool thing about if the proletariat own and control the means of production, you've gotten rid of classes. So this idea of, of communism gets us out of the, the 200, the 150,000 year long history of humanity. Not sorry, it's more like 50,000 year history of humanity in this class warfare and gets mm -hmm. us out of class warfare because all of a sudden we go from being workers as compared to owners to worker owners. So now there's no class division in society. And so we don't have that inherent class war as the basis of our society. So then the superstructure that you build on top of that, the communist superstructure, is one of like free associated labor where I can do, I can sort of, for me specifically, I can fly, you know, one day. I can fly around and do that kind of stuff and, and learn how to do that. I can drum the next day and, and maybe produce some music. I can work on some legal tech one day. And another day I can write and, and criticize with my friends. I should be mm -hmm. able to do all of those things, as Marx says in, in uh, I'm not sure exactly where it is. I think it's German ideology, but it says, I can do all those things without becoming a pilot, mm -hmm. a lawyer, a, a musician. Like, I don't have to be those things. And capitalism forces us to be these one profession kind of things because that's the only way that we're going to get subsistence. And so it dehumanizes us. There's this whole dehumanizing and alienating uh, idea in Marx that we're alienated from our labor because we see that it's kind of bullshit. Everybody knows this, right? Your job, that's why we have happy hour at five o'clock because we know uh, like the other hours were shitty and the happy hours when our job ends, you know? <laughs> and so like we already have this kind of built-in understanding that like what we're doing at our jobs is alienating. We don't really care. We don't really care if the thing succeeds or not because what we care about is the paycheck because the paycheck gets us the things we actually want. So, so that's okay. So that's Marxism, right? So then, then you actually have how history develops. And so Marx has a certain, you know, Marx writes the Communist Manifesto, which is very influential. Uh, writes Capital, which is a, an amazing critique of of, um, of uh, capitalism. He writes the 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 Grundrisse, the uh, like the German ideology. A lot of these really, actually, the 18th Brumaire is one of the best political writings ever, and it just showed how Marx was not only a genius in terms of his ability to um, like write and synthesize things, but he just knew how to, he was an, like, he would be amazing on Twitter. Like his hot takes are ridiculous. Like it's just amazing. <laughs> I wish, I wish Marx could get on Twitter. It would be <laughs> but uh, uh, so, but, and then Marx dies in like 1889, I think Marx mm. died. And so right at the turn of the century. And um, the, the idea in, in Marx is, is that the system, the capitalist system is going to have to develop to its, to like the, its last point. Its contradictions are going to have to be really apparent. So it's going to be really, really, really advanced capitalism that can move into socialism. So when he looked around the world and said, well, who's advanced, who's the most advanced capitalist countries? That's the United States, Germany, uh, Britain. That's, you know, those are the most advanced. Who are the least advanced? Russia, China. Um, you know, Latin America, Africa. These are very undeveloped. These aren't even capitalist economies for the most part. They're basically still feudal. So they haven't even gotten, they haven't even gone through that feudal, you know, French revolution where you got rid of the king and put in a, a parliament. And mm. so, uh, so if you want to look at where socialism is going to be successful, it's, it's an advanced capitalist economies like the United States, Germany, and, and Britain. If you want cap uh, so, like socialist experiments to fail, try them in China, Russia, and uh, Africa, and uh, Latin America. Well, what did we get in history? The exact opposite of what Marx sort of 
thought was going to happen or Marx predicted was going to happen. And I, I still think the prediction is probably true, but it, it helps explain what happened in those places. So uh, going back to the Christian analogy, the idea like Stalinism, Maoism, Leninism, uh, Hoaxism, Titoism, uh, Guevarism, Fidelismo, like all of these, <laughs> these kinds of ideas, mm. you know, Juche in North Korea, yeah. you know, the, any, uh, sorry, socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is what they call it in, in China. Uh, all of these are what you might call denominations of the Marxist religion. Right, so if, if Marxism is the is Christianity, then Stalinism is Lutheranism. Stalinism is Catholicism. Let's be honest, and like Trotskyism is Lutheranism, right? And you can kind of make these. So they agree on like ninety percent. Uh, the base ideas, they're all in agreement. Was Trotskyism and not uh, Leninism very like aligned or not? Is that is that a false statement? It, de it depends on if you who you ask. If you ask someone who considers themselves a Marxist Leninist, Trotskyism yeah. is like the worst thing in the world. If you, talk, if, you say, if you talk to a Trotskyist, they'll tell you they're a Leninist. So it's very ah, okay. confusing uh, because, because, a Mar because Marxist-Leninism is a code word for Stalinism. Uh, mm. Now, they won't, they won't mm. say that, but that's, they, they, there's sure, no, sure. they will say there's nothing unique about Stalin. He's just doing what Lenin did. So there, there's a big split in the socialist world between the, the more anarchist socialists and the more state-based socialists. The socialists who think, look, you got to take over the state. The state can then get rid of the business owners and put the workers in control. You have the anarchists who say, no, the workers have to do it themselves from the bottom up through strikes and all those kinds of things. And there's a big disagreement. There's a further disagreement when, uh, and so those are the two, uh, uh, an initial split. Splits are how this all kind of happens. Then, then you have World War I, and that splits, again, the socialist world, because there are people who supported going into war in World War I, and those who thought it was an imperialist, an imperialist war that, that capitalism was just another representation of the internal contradictions of capitalism. And so that splits, and you have people who, are, who you know, fight in the war on their countryside and people who don't, and Lenin takes this position where you don't. Other, other people like Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht in Germany also take this position. But uh, history you know, happens the way that it does. And what happens is you have a lot of Russian uh, people who are reading Marx and trying to adopt it to the Russian situation because Russia hasn't really developed capitalism. There, there was this thing called the Vita plan that did uh, introduce capitalism and stuff like that, but under the, un, like, w in line with a feudal system, somewhat similar to actually the way that Britain did it in, in terms of like fusing feudalism and capitalism together so that the feudal lords just become the new capitalist leaders. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, so the, they're trying to adopt it to the situation and the basic idea that they come up with and that's adopted other places is that in places that haven't had their own capitalist revolution, socialists can bring about the capitalist revolution and then continue that revolution into socialism. There are traditional Marxists who look at that and go, what the fuck are you talking about? You're crazy, right? You can't do, you can't just like push history forward. And Marx uh, himself, Marx himself actually came like Marx, you know, wrote in 1848, the Communist Manifesto, which is when revolutions were going on all over Europe. But these were revolutions against feudalism, trying to instill capitalism. And he had the idea, oh, look, just socialists could get in there because then we'll just keep the revolution going. And he got kicked the fuck out of Germany because, because mm. he was doing too much of that stuff. And they said, I'm not going to let you stay here and just continue your revolution. That's bullshit. And he got kicked out to France. And France was like, we don't want your ass here. And went to Belgium. They don't want him. Finally ended up in, in London. 
you know? And so the, the, that idea had been tried and it failed and it failed during Marx's lifetime, but it was, it was sort of re-energized by people like Lenin who, who, and, and Trotsky who came up with that Trotsky had this permanent revolution idea, but that you'd be able to just uh, continue the revolution forward. So it's not a big deal that we haven't gone through that phase. And, and there's this like, the, the people who think that you do have to are, are stagists and they don't believe in the revolution. And so they're not real Marxists. You get a lot of that kind of, just like Christianity, you know, like the Lutherans are like, ah, oh, the Catholics don't have it right. And the Catholics are like, you're all going to hell. And they again, agree on 90% of it, but they fight on the 10%. This is the socialist sort of experiment. And so Lenin comes in and, and Lenin's big advancement in, in socialism is, um, so Marx kind of participated in, uh, in some revolutions, but none of them were socialist revolutions. And, uh, and I think what, and so he didn't have a real good idea about what a socialist revolution would kind of look like. How would you do it? And specifically, how would you do it in something like a feudal society like Russia? So that's Lenin's big contribution. Lenin's big contribution is revolutionary theories, particularly when you have a despotic regime. So when your party is illegal, like there was a party in Germany that was legal. So it's different, right? That their revolutionary mm. prospect is going to be a lot different than when, you're, when your party is completely illegal. If you have a free press, it's a different strategy than when your press is, is not, I mean, you have censorship. So Lenin's idea is how do you have a revolution in a czarist regime, mm. not a socialist revolution? And there's, he has this idea that you have a, you have a party, which is this, central, this highly centralized organization that acts as a vanguard. So it's going to be made up of representatives of the most advanced, the, meaning the ones who are trained in Marxist theory, the, the most advanced elements of the working class. And what they'll do is they'll sort of take the reins of the revolution. They'll organize the revolution. They'll organize workers. They'll organize trade unions. And they will be, the, the party will uh, get into a position of power where it, where it can be in control of the state. Now, Lenin was uh, uh, sort of didn't matter how that was going to happen. If they can win an election, ah, we'll go in an election. If we have to have a coup, fuck it, we'll do a coup. Like it didn't matter. But the party was going to take control of the state. And then the party was going to oversee the transition of the society from capitalism to socialism. So, um, so they, they go through this long process of turning the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, uh, which itself had a split between uh, the Mensheviks, which is considered the minority, and the Bolsheviks, considered the majority, even though technically at the meeting they were at, that was switched. It just, they just so happened to take the vote at the right time. Because say what you will about Lenin, but that guy knew how to play politics. Go, oh, shit, everybody's out of the room. Let's take a vote. You know, oh, we're the majority now. Um, that's basically what Lenin did. It was, it's pretty amazing. And Trotsky and him were on different sides of that debate. So for a long time, Trotsky was a Menshevik and they had different ideas. They were very much in that stagist idea. No, no, we got to go through a, a, a capitalist sort of period. Mm. And then, you know, we can help the capitalists overthrow the czar because we all hate the czar, but they're going to implement capitalism and we're going to have to go through that. Yeah. And then we can have a socialist mm. Lenin and stuff was like, fuck that. We're not going to let, we're not going to make Russian peasants go from peasants to workers only then yeah. to go through a revolution. We're going to make them revolutionary workers. Mate, can so, I, sorry, sorry, Kevin, yeah. can I just jump in that quick? Yeah, I just yeah, want to yeah. ask a quick question. So uh, I, I, I've got to admit, I don't know too much about this whole subject, but I just want to know because um, I might have watched a few documentaries, whether it's been on uh, Netflix or YouTube and whatnot. But um, from what I heard and saw, it was kind of like, I remember Lenin was obviously, uh, when he was brought up, his brother got um, killed by the czars. And, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like all this, that, yeah. and the other, because they tried to start their own little re revolution. 
Yeah. Um, and that kind of probably ingrained the idea of that uh, revolutionary mindset that he had. Yeah. Um, when he was imprisoned himself, he was sent uh, to Siberia when, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I think I'm correct, when he was sent to yeah. Siberia and he had like, um, he had uh, maids and he had servants and he had people working for him. And it was, it was kind of like he had a very cushy life as a prisoner in Siberia, mm. right? Mm. So this is what my thinking, since seeing and uh, kind of learning about that, uh, when we talk about the Bolsheviks and all that, I'm always thinking Trotsky was always the kind of guy, I'm just assuming, who kind of took the lead, but uh, maybe didn't get enough credit for it. But obviously, from what you just said now, uh, when they were kind of opposing sides, that's where I'm conflicted because I don't know enough about that. So I'm, I'm intrigued. Is that, is that a correct statement, what I said? Or is that, was Lenin always sort of, you know, uh, strong-headed in that mindset of, kind of Marxist way. So the, the best, one of the best things about Lenin is that if you read Lenin, I would say a good 40 to 50% of what Lenin writes is uh, our hit pieces. So he, he goes after people and he is just relentless. Like it's, it's hardcore. And he says some terrible things about people. Um, and sometimes because, and, and it's just if they disagree with it. So if they disagree politically, he's like, they don't know what they're talking about. They're, 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 what, are they, what are they even thinking? This is insane. <laughs> they're going to screw up the whole project. They're, they're not really revolutionary. This is nonsense. And he'll do sure. this kind of stuff. And he kind of freaked out a lot. And, yeah. and, some, and, and when there was a split with the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, yeah, Trotsky got a lot of shit from Lenin. There, there was a lot of times like, you, you know, like this, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about and he, he's not been in the struggle long enough. And he's, who the hell is he? He just appeared and all this kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> later on, um, I mean, the Russian revolution is a very complicated story. There are, there are basically three important revolutions in, in the Russian revolution story. One that happens in 1905 that, that, uh, basically destroys a lot of the czar's absolutist power and then there's two in 1917 and in 1917 uh trotsky stopped being a menshevik and became a bolshevik because he realized that they actually had the right perspective and uh and from then on lenin was like there was no better bolshevik than trotsky and there's a big debate between those who are more pro-stalinist and those more pro-trotsky which is another split that happened um they uh there, there's a lot. There's writings that suggest Lenin was thinking about Trotsky to be the the general secretary of the Communist Party, which was a very obviously important and powerful position, and uh, and there some being critical of Stalin and saying Stalin doesn't have the capacity to do it and he should be in that position. There's other writings that that say Lenin, you know, was really happy with Stalin and not happy with Trotsky, and so both sides kind of use Lenin as like, who did Lenin like? And like for me, it's like I don't really give a shit who Lenin likes because a he was old <laughs> and he had a few strokes and I, whatever. So, um, but there there is a split in terms of at least so uh, on the Lenin on Lenin in Siberia, uh, I would I would in some ways take issue a bit with the the characterization in the uh in the film about like there being maids and things like that there were definitely people who would give mail and they they didn't they weren't in jail because you're in siberia right it's like where the hell are you going to go of course that was actually a bad idea because like lenin escaped trotsky escaped they all escaped mm, multiple yeah. times and so they all went like multiple times and they escaped every time so like it was i don't think the, the czarist police machine was very porous in that sense but they, um, there were also a lot of sympathetic people who knew who they were and would be totally happy with like, yeah, dude, I just, I just 
took Trotsky to the station in Finland. Like, holy shit, really? That's you're cool. You know, so there's some social status. Yeah, there's some social status to uh, to helping out the revolutionaries, right? And so, um, so, but the the I think another big split that, that sort of that that happened is is basically around the the Russian Revolution, because there were, everybody on the socialist left was like overjoyed in October of, of 1917. Ah, the workers have taken control over the government. And it's very complicated because the, they had set up these things called Soviets. The, the, a Soviet means a workers' council. So it really is this like democratic body that's that bringing in workers from different factories to make decisions about what's going to happen and things like that. A very democratic way of running society. And so there was all this excitement like, yeah, they're really doing it. Like, yeah, it's, it's sort of backwards and maybe they're going to have to do this double revolution thing, but they're putting the right people in charge. And the whole thing was all power to the Soviets. Like, yeah, all power to these local democratic organizations, decentralization. Yeah, this is all great. Then a civil war happens. And for five years, they have to fight a war. And when you fight a war, every economy becomes a war economy. So every, every, it's like conscription and all these terrible things that immediately take away from all the freedom and exuberance and all this kind of stuff. And so freedoms are curtailed and, and you know, like you have, having to go to work is enforced at the point of a gun and all this kind of stuff. But this, the production goes through the freaking roof. And so there's this, there's this inkling on a lot of people who are in, high up in the Communist Party that like, shit, would you just keep this war communism stuff going? Like we're getting so we're industrializing the shit out of the country. And if we want to have this revolution, we've got to compete with the capitalists. And the only way we can do it is if we create this giant labor camp. And, uh, and I think what the basic thing that happened, at least from my perspective is Lenin dies and there's, there's a, there's a power struggle between Trotsky and Stalin and Stalin had a better position in the party. Uh, Trotsky had been fighting the civil war as leader of the red army while Stalin was organizing the sort of bureaucracy that was developing around the war communist economy. And so Stalin had a stronger position in the bureaucracy, which was the political power base. Trotsky was a bit outside of it, and the Red Army, you know, was having people get killed all the time, doing all this kind of stuff. And so it was, you know, had just finished fighting a war. And so uh, eventually Stalin basically wins out in terms of the power struggle. Trotsky's exiled and is critical of Stalin uh, uh, basically until Stalin has him killed. Because Stalin sent a you know an assassin and you know I don't know if you ever seen it but an ice pick right into Trotsky's head. It's wow. nasty, nasty way to wow, die. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, um, but uh, so Stalin then uh, is is basically in control of the Soviet Union, or at least I mean that's an easy way to say it. There there are a lot of layers to Soviet democracy. I don't want to like I know that there's some tanky out there who might hear this podcast who's like there was a lot of democracy in the Soviet Union and there there really was there was a lot of democracy. I, I don't want to say it was like devoid of democracy, but it had serious problems with human rights and and the workers were not in control of the means of production in Russia, right? And that's why for me when when Stalin in like the late 20s and early 30s says, this is a socialist country. We're building socialism in one country. Because the idea had always been that socialism had to be like capitalism, a worldwide revolution. And there was an attempted revolution after the war in, uh, in Germany, uh, a socialist revolution that actually failed. It was drowned in blood by the people who would eventually become the Nazis. And so that failure, Stalin pulled back and was like, dude, we got to just consolidate here because that's going to happen to us if we're not careful. And so he says, he says to everybody, look, you guys have been struggling forever. The civil war, the revolution, all the, the, the you know, mass industrialization. Jesus, it's been a lot of work. Lots of people have died. Like, this has been really hard. So you know what? We are socialist. This is a socialist country. And for the rest of the fucking, since then, 
every there's this been this idea that if the government owns everything and and uh and that's it and, and the government does things that that's socialism and that's partly trots or that's partly stalin's fault but also everyone in the west went oh great we want to contrast ourselves with the soviet union and all of its human rights violations and everything like that so like yeah that that the government ownership of things is is the real thing but if you look at the base the workers never owned the means of production in the soviet union they don't in china they don't in north korea they don't in cuba there is nowhere in the world that the, that where that a country has as its economic base worker ownership of the means of production you do have it in giant corporations uh like mondragon which is a giant cooperative organization in um in Spain, you have you know worker co-op. There's Emania Romana in Italy that has a lot of cooperatives. The Rochdale Society in the UK also had a lot of cooperatives. There's an international cooperative association. There are examples of workers owning the means of production, but not in like a state and not helped by the state because the state is there to help the current uh, economic paradigm, which is capitalist, not socialist. So what you really had in in uh, to make this real short, what you have in China, what you have in the Soviet Union, what you had in Cuba, what you have in all these countries is really a state capitalist regime where instead of private individuals owning the means of production, the state does. But the state becomes the employer and you still have employees. So you've maintained that class dynamic. So if, if communism is the goal of eliminating that class dynamic and making a classless society where everyone is a worker owner, then, then the Soviet Union and China are very far from that that goal. They are simply, they've just simply changed who owns and controls the means of production from the state, or sorry, from individuals to the state. But that's no different than if the state owns slavery. Like if, if, the, if you have private individuals who own slaves and the state who owns slaves, they're having the same relationship. It doesn't matter if it's the state. It's not somehow socialism if the state just owned, owned a slave. It's still slavery. And so that's been I think uh, out uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, and as China switched to a more market economy, there's been a new, there's been a kind of new turn um, in socialism and a new emergent idea that really focuses on worker co-ops, which is part of the movement that I've tried to put myself into because I really think this is really important. And so, particularly Richard Wolff is a, is an important person um, talking about worker co-ops and how that can really be the basis of an entirely new society, much less economy, and mm -hmm. I've, you know, I really liked his perspective that it does come up from, um, you know, sort of Marxist lens um, and uh, got involved with the democracy at work group and started uh, that eventually evolved into doing the other podcast that I'm a part of, which is, you know, all things, all things co-op. So the, the, there's still a lot of splits. There's still people who call themselves Trotskyists and Leninists and Marxist Leninists, which really means Stalinists and Maoists and Ding Xiaopingists. And I mean, there's just, you know, there's, every kind of thing and there's there are minute differences between them and they're like Mao Zedong had a lot of interesting ideas because he said the peasantry should play an important role in the revolution whereas Marx said if you have peasants you're not ready for a socialist revolution because capitalism gets rid of peasants like why are socialism why there should be no socialist peasants what the hell is that and and but Mao said no 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 that just doesn't understand the situation in a place like China and so you have a debate between the more orthodox Marxist who says China has to go through a period of capitalist development and Mao Zedong who said, no, we don't. 
And then between, with Dao Ping, who says, yeah, actually you kind of do. So maybe we should reorient back to a market economy because at least if you read the Chinese Communist Party literature, the whole idea of what they've been doing for the last 30 or 40 years is developing an internal market economy that can sustain itself so that then the, the Communist Party of China can get this. I'm sure we'll all laugh about this like withdraw itself from society and give the society back to the working class of China. Now, I don't actually think that the Chinese Communist Party is really going to do that because I think the Chinese Communist Party has a lot of internal contradictions that will, um, that I think are apparent in many ways. Um, but China has this weird communist idea about what it's actually doing. And so mm. I don't think that China is actually a communist country, but weirdly enough, I think it's a capitalist, a state capitalist country with a, with, a, with a Marxist perspective, at least in terms of its propaganda. I'm not sure that it actually is doing that in reality. I think for the most part, members of the Communist Party are benefiting from the market forces in China and the government ownership of the means of production in a way that is essentially corrupt. And that corruption incentive is way higher than the incentive to give back to the working class because of the high ideal of, of, of socialism or communism. So, you know, it's really hard and there's been there's lots of real reasons at least from even from a marxist perspective why those 20th century experiments failed but i think that um the interesting thing is that they're often touted as invalidations of marxism when sure. in reality the only way to actually understand what happened in those societies is to use a marxist lens so for mm -hmm. me the irony is that they actually reinforce the ideas of marxism rather than discredit them but to know that you have to understand the ideas of marxism which as I'm sure a listener of this podcast will already attest, is difficult. <laughs> and, you know, it's long, it's hard. It's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of bullshit and there's a lot of- No, like, you're right, man. A lot of people yeah, that you right. got to read and, and there's a lot of people who blow smoke up your ass and who tell you false truths. And so, you know, having a good ability to like see what's bullshit and what's not is really important to this kind of stuff because you can be led in all kinds of crazy directions and, and in, into like cults and stuff like that. You know what I mean? No, it's Jim, true, man. Jim it's Jones, true. the guy who had that mass suicide at Jonestown, he had yeah, a kind yeah, yeah. of, you know, people's church, marxist kind of perspective. So there's dangerous ways this, this can go down. So your bullshit detector has to be really finely tuned. No, I get you. I get you. You're right, man. Because, I mean, one, one of my questions was going to be like, like what, what, what is the kind of the, the biggest misconception of socialism that exists in the world today, right? And not maybe in this current present time, but even throughout history. But what you just mentioned just there, um, a lot of that is also down to propaganda from maybe people. I, I'm not saying they don't understand what these other countries are sort of, um, you know, gearing towards, but they clearly have an agenda. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that is down to propaganda. So they will just, um, you know, literally stamp these countries with a communist or a socialist sort of stamp and say, yep, you know I mean? Don't go near them, they're dangerous. They believe in this ideology and they believe in that and this. But like you said, if you really get down to the crux of it in terms of Marxist, Marxism views and whatnot, it's, it's kind of different because not, not many uh, nations have actually followed that uh, through and through. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not saying to a T, but in, maybe in the right way. And mm -hmm. that, that's why it's really intriguing. But yeah, that, that's, that's the kind of question I'm... I want to ask you now, like what, what do you think in your opinion is the biggest misconception, let's say socialist, socialism in, in, the, in what exists in the world? The, yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 there's sort of two interrelated ones. And I, the, the, the biggest one, I think, honestly, is that 
um, the, the sort of Reagan Thatcherite idea that the Soviet Union was the evil empire. Um, I think the, um, the, the association of socialism with evil is, is the quickest and dumbest argument in the, in the sort of world, but you hear it constantly. Whereas like you can just invalidate the whole notion because it's evil. You know, like socialism is evil. I mean, I, I was reading a book about socialism on, on the subway here in, uh, and somebody like, socialism sucks. You know, it's like, <laughs> there's nothing else that like, somebody's not gonna be reading the Bible and anyone's gonna be like, the Bible sucks. You know, so it's got this, there's been a, a decades long project to, to completely uh, equate the ideas of socialism with, with evil. And um, uh, the, the, so there, there's, there's that, and I think the part of it is that, the, and, and many people see the evil that it is as the state ownership of things and, this, and the, the, the state having this role in society where it will at least control the commanding heights or do things like even healthcare and stuff like that in the United States. I know for anyone, anyone else in the world who is not from America who's listening to this podcast will think obviously, yeah, obviously like healthcare, but of course all of us <laughs> Americans are like, yeah, healthcare, like, you know, our one chance at getting it, Bernie Sanders was destroyed by our supposedly liberal party. You know what I mean? How, what, a, what an absolute joke. But so, but the, the, the idea that if the state does something, it's evil, or sorry, if the state does something, it's socialist. And if it's socialist, it's evil. Therefore, the state shouldn't do anything. Has in the United States in particular had devastating effects on, on my personal life and, my, you know, and on, my, on my friends, on my, on my, uh, on my family. I mean, these, these are things that, that are societal, that have societal-wide impacts that, that are really do, I mean, a lot of damage. And so I think... Um, the 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 biggest misconception can can you know be as dangerous as getting people killed i mean i think when you look at the united states the united states has in almost every country in latin america either attempted or accomplished a coup or has sent in um paramilitary would be the nice way to say it but usually death squads terrorist death squads in a lot of these places to to sort of kill people because it was fighting against the evil empire so there there's a lot of in some ways that that just sort of brings me to the sort of the perspective taking that needs to happen especially as somebody as an american because one of the things that i read very early on in the socialist thing was i think it was a chomsky thing or it was somebody but the uh i my country is a terrorist nation and I'm an American was the title of it. And it just went through the litany of crimes that the United States has committed. And if you commit, com, com, and like what about ism is a kind of bullshit thing, but the idea that you, that the Soviet union is the evil empire and you compare the Soviet union's ills, which are long compared to the United States ills, which are longer. Uh, it seems kind of bullshit that we would, that we would wave the American flag while denouncing the Soviet union. Well, if you put put the British, it was in that in that category. Is that yeah. the longest? The, the longest list? I, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you guys haven't even written down your constitution. So Jesus Christ! I mean, and you and you still have a queen. So yeah, like I mean, some of the all the all like for me, especially as an American. I mean, I uh, it, like it, the the irony of this, right? You'll you'll understand this, but I am a dyed in the wool Republican, at least in the UK 
right perspective, not in the American perspective, which I'm right. very much not a Republican. So right. if I'm in the United States, I am, I am ardently not a Republican. If I would be in the UK, I would be the staunchest of Republicans. Like, you know, the, 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 the Royal family needs to go. And I was hoping that the, the pedophile shit with, uh, with which prince is that? I don't know. One of those fuckers. Andrew. Yeah. Chris Andrew. I was hoping that would, maybe piss enough people off where there would be a new, a new movement to, to go Republican or maybe one of those younger kids, you know, like I know Charles ain't going to give it up, but maybe the, maybe, maybe one of the other ones will give it well, up. Well, Harry, Harry moved to Canada or something, right? Right. So he's, uh, he, he renounced, right? So he, mm. so he's out. So it's just William. I don't know what that fucker thinks. I don't know. I know he's missing <laughs> his hair, but that's about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, you um, you touched upon your um, your other podcast uh, briefly, the um, uh, All Things Co-op, yeah. which uh, I'm not going to lie, I've, I've heard clips from because um, mm-hmm. I only I only got introduced to it recently. But from from what I've heard, it sounds absolutely quality. But I got asked a couple of questions surrounding that. Yeah. Um, first of all, if you can, just for everyone who's listening, um, hopefully a big audience, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, if you can just go through that like, in your terminology, so. What exactly is a co-op, right? And how does a co-op serve the people? And sort of contradictory that, how do the people serve a co-op? Like, what's the main essence of it, in your own words, if that's right? Yeah. So you know, cooperative in some ways is a very is a, just a broad, broad and very vague term. So you know, in general, co to be cooperative is to work together towards some kind of shared goal. And so in, in many ways, the interesting thing, one of the positions even in, uh, in the sort of Marxist tradition is that one of the really innovative things about capitalism is that you go from more individualized labor that you find in like slavery or, um, or feudalism and into social production. So you, like we're, you know, big factories and places where there are lots of employees who work together towards these accomplished goals. It, it's really based on cooperative principles, at least inside the firm. And then there's the problem of the class dynamics. And so cooperate, cooperatives and cooperation really just means working together towards accomplishing a shared goal. But economically, the cooperative has had, uh, it, it, is, it is the contrasting uh, economic the, uh, firm uh, than to the normal. So the normal is a, a sole proprietor, like the sole proprietorship is the easy one, right? So a single individual owns a business and gets all of the, and all of the profits of the business go to the, the owner, right? That's, that's a very simple way of, the, of, a, of business organization. The more complicated ones are corporations in which there is this added element of democracy in which you have a board of directors who then vote on, on certain things. And you can have the, the ability for shareholders to also have some kind of vote that will, in, that will federate up to the, the board who will ultimately take the vote. And potentially even just the CEO of the, or the, the chairman of the board may ultimately make that decision. But that you add in uh, different levels of ownership uh, and control over the, over the uh, businesses. But in terms of the relationship between the board and the employees, it's the same as a sole proprietorship. So the cooperative, now, now there are other kinds of cooperatives, um, like um, there are distribution cooperatives that are kind of like, let's get a bunch of businesses together and share a network so that we, you know, we can all, you know, it, there can be something like uh, two or three different cab companies 
will organize a cooperative, you know, cooperative to share cabs, because, you know, or something like that. Like you could cooperatize in different ways. You can have a consumer co-op where people who shop at a store also uh, pay a certain amount, pay some kind of amount to be a member of the co-op, which then allows them to maybe vote on certain decisions that are being taken or just allows them to get a discount on prices. So that's your sort of normal grocery co-op. But what we're really talking about on the All Things Co-op podcast really is the worker cooperative. So the worker cooperative is, is different in that, and this dovetails you know, in, with the socialism stuff, which is really just the attempt to create an example of worker ownership of the means of production. So you take any firm and you say, what we're going to do is we're going to eliminate the dynamic between the owner, whether that's the, the board and the shareholders or a single sole proprietor, and distribute that amongst the workers. So you allow, and there are certain principles. Um, now, again, these uh, come in all shapes and forms. Some will have a situation where it's just only worker owners uh, and that nobody can invest. There's some people who allow investors who get preferred non-voting stocks. So they get paid first, but they don't get to vote. So they might have a bit of ownership stake, but they don't have control, which is very important because a lot of times you'll have in the United States, we have these things called employee stock ownership plans which are kind of like retirement plans, but basically are ownership stake in the business that each employee has, which is cool. That's ownership, but it doesn't translate to being able to take any votes in terms of deciding how profits are distributed or anything like that. So it's a form of ownership, but it's not ownership and control, which is, it is sort of what you want to have in a, in a worker cooperative. So the, the worker cooperative is a form of employee ownership that is based on democratic principles, specifically one person, one vote. So in a shareholder situation, you know, the difference between that and the one worker, one vote is that depending on how many shares you have, you get that many votes. So if you own a majority of the shares, you just, you just always win the democracy. There's no genuine democracy there because you own a majority of the votes. In a worker cooperative, there is no majority of the votes because it's one worker, one vote. And so it's a radical different kind of business organizational model. But uh, through lots of examples and conversations that we've had, and even just sort of theoretical kinds of ways of understanding human dynamics, uh, worker cooperatives has, have this incredible advantage uh, in terms of retention of employees, productivity of each individual employee, um, ability to compete, long-term strategic investment decisions. All of these are usually um, sort of if you can do as close to a one-to-one -one measure, uh, the worker cooperative outperforms those. So the, 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 the Marxist kind of stuff is very philosophical and highfalutin and all about history and all this kind of stuff. The worker cooperative stuff is very much on the ground. What do these look like? What does worker ownership of the means of production look like in terms of the actual dynamics among workers? And what does it produce in terms of the actual outcomes? And the, the cool thing is it, produces good outcomes for both the workers and the products. And so um, one big idea about how you're eventually going to get the kind of revolutionary change into a situation where worker ownership or cooperative ownership of the means of, of businesses is more common than individual ownership is essentially to be able to outcompete. So to, to even compete in a market system, because one misconception is that capitalism is markets. It's not. Capitalism is about individuals owning the, the productive forces. And then markets are just the way you exchange them. Because a, a communist business or a cooperative business can compete in the same market as a capitalist business. And so 
if they can compete in the market and win, then uh, there is the tendency for more businesses to go a worker cooperative route because the outcomes are better. Um, it runs against the incentive of individuals to want power um, because it distributes power, uh, mm. you know, yeah. vertically rather than horizontally. And there is a, 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 a an innate human drive towards a hierarchical power. So, but there is also a tendency towards verticalization and cooperatization. And so, it's we are in a situation of fighting the incentive structure of the overall system of sort of capitalist production to go to your standard sole proprietorship or board of directors kind of ownership model. And we're needing to find ways to grow the sector of the worker cooperatives to be able to genuinely find places to compete one-on-one -on -one to show that we're better. So the big project right now is, is really growing awareness, growing the number of worker co-ops, connecting them in ways in which they can create a sort of whole sector of the economy on their own so that people can, like you do free trade or like, you, you know, um, non-GMO or whatever, any of that kind of shit, right? People, people purchase based on those kind of decision-making. So can you get people to decide to use cooperative businesses because they're better for the workers, they ultimately produce the same or better products at cheaper prices um, and so they can compete in the market? If you can do that, mm. man, that's, that, is a, that is one way of having that old anarchist dream of yeah. not having the state take over and like rid people of their businesses, but you just have so much competition that nobody starts a sole proprietorship because it's fucking stupid, mm. you know? And so that's, I think for me, at least the ultimate kind of goal in terms of focusing on co-ops is can we talk about co-ops in a way that makes, that we don't always have to use the scary S word and that we can kind of uh, still talk about worker ownership on the ground, what it looks like and help them grow and compete so that we can, uh, so that we can at a minimum connect it with a, with a new party or some kind of party structure so that we can have legislation that is, um, that is beneficial for cooperatives, which is actually yeah. what teaser season three of the All Things Co-op podcast is going to be conversations with people all around the United States um, and hopefully around the world who are engaged in legislation, like making legislation or actually doing on the ground co-op building and kind of trying to get their experiences and, and sort of collecting that somewhere. And I think the, mm. the, we figured the all things co-op is not a bad place to do it. No, mate, you're spot on. I mean, I was looking to that. The, um, uh, I know you mentioned the Rochdale principles. Um, yeah. I was going to actually ask a question upon that. And I was actually going to redirect our listeners to, uh, for, for, to get a real in-depth, uh, some understanding on it, go to all things, um, uh, co-op podcast. Definitely. I was just yeah. going to ask a few questions surrounding that anyway. Sure. Um, but uh, before we get to that, I was just going to ask. So one thing I'm intrigued by is like, where is kind of like the balance between like a company, for example, uh, looking out, f looking after their bottom line. Right. Mm -hmm. And then also trying to look after workers. Cause that's kind of the, um, the spin story, which most corporations and companies will kind of say, do you know what I mean, they'll do everything legitimately by the book to say they're looking after employees by the, um, you know, just, just enough to cover their, cover themselves by HR or whatnot. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but does this go hand in hand? Like, does it not need to be a case of companies need to look after their bottom line in order to fill their employees kind of pockets or, or is this, is there another way around this? And so, yeah. So, uh, 
my sort of the short answer is not within capitalism, uh, at least not in terms of the modern capitalist system that we have. Mm. Some have called it shareholder capitalism, right? As maybe opposed to stakeholder capitalism or something like right. that. But the idea is it comes down to this, th this legal notion of the fiduciary duty. So are you familiar with this fiduciary duty? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So for those that are not, the quick idea is that the fiduciary duty means that a certain person has the obligation to ensure the financial security, stability, and, and uh, growth of an investment. So different people have fiduciary duties. So if somebody, let's say somebody goes under, uh, for like a, for, uh, goes under anesthesia for a, for a surgery, and they're under anesthesia and they stop breathing or something and they, they uh, have a traumatic brain injury. Um, it might have a court case and the court case will designate someone to, to basically uh, manage the investment of the award that the person will get. That person has a fiduciary duty to make sure that that money stays at least what it is, grows at at least the market rate, and that the, nobody makes any decisions that will do anything to eliminate or decrease that possibility. Boards of directors have that obligation to the investors of a company. So if, any, if there are any investors in a company, the priority of the company is to, is to make decisions that will get the biggest amount of return for the people who are investing. So <laughs> that creates this incredible perverse incentive where the, the situation is that, like you were saying, when it comes to environmental rules what are the what are the rules and the laws that are that are that are the base level of what we have to do and also what are the costs of actually violating those laws because if the cost of violating the laws are less than the amount that we would have to that we would lose if we didn't do it then we have a finance we have a fiduciary duty to violate the law um, so the fiduciary duty i mean is in some ways very perverse when it comes to workers rights what is our base minimum that we have to do under U.S. labor law? We have, if you do more than that and it decreases the bottom line of the company, a shareholder can sue for violation of fiduciary duty. Uh, this, the fiduciary duty is a strict obligation to do everything you can solely for the purposes of getting profit. But Kevin, so, like, sorry, 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 yeah. sorry to mind, but I'm just saying, like, I, I, we're using the word fiduciary duty, but then, what what's stopping what's stopping sort of the hierarchy of people saying, all right, we're looking after workers here on this level, but then like we're looking after but CEOs and you know what you know C level people are looking after their C, uh, their stakeholders and whatnot, and they're 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 maybe packaging it around a fiduciary duty uh, kind of statement. So you know what I mean who trumps who in the sense of you know what I mean in the cycle. Because it just seems like a, a buzz, a word where, yeah, it holds a lot of stature, but you could use it in any, any walk of the company cycle, life cycle. So who has a final say and who gets to actually benefit and who loses from it kind of? It, and so the, 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 the fun thing about going to law school is that when someone asks you a legal question, you get to say that the answer is always, it depends. So it depends. <laughs> but the, 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 basic, the basic position, I mean, I think that it, it really does depend on the individual shareholders of a company. So you might have the kind of company where you're very clear in, in the, 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 the sort of basic bylaws and organization of the company that the company is going to prioritize that decision-making in its decisions. 
what you'll do is tend to have people on the board who agree with that general perspective and in, in sh and shareholders that genuinely agree with that perspective. So for companies that are smaller and, and maybe just doing an IPO or just going into a round of investment or something like that, they can usually retain those models and have some ability to kind of do those. So they can be, you know, better companies, we might say. There is a, an inflection point at which your investment is high enough and the number of investors and the number of shareholders that you get are, are enough where there is at least the chance that an individual investor will not have the same goals that you have, but will look more so to the fiduciary duty, which could then lead to a case where the shareholder would sue the board for making a decision that decreased the dividend uh, to the shareholder and violated the fiduciary duty. Now you'd go to court and maybe you'd make all kinds of legal arguments that look, the company has had this for a long history. The shareholder should have known that this was part of it. It's not really a violation of its fiduciary duty because its fiduciary duty is wrapped up in this. And maybe you'd win. I think that a lot of, let's say Trump appointed judges will say, uh, nope, the fiduciary duty trumps, get, get this out of here, like stop doing this. You know, in some ways, the, the, I don't know if you've heard about this, but Bank of America has pledged a billion dollars to I don't know what exactly, but the, the black, because of the Black Lives Matter anti-police violence movement they, to community building or whatever the hell that means from a bank. But, the, um, but I was thinking about this today. I guarantee you this won't get in the news, so don't worry. Like the company's already got all its good PR from saying they're going <laughs> to donate a billion dollars. But somebody's going to sue. There's, there's one of the investors of Bank of America is going to say that is a major violation of your fiduciary duty. I want a piece of that billion dollars. Who the fuck says that you can invest a billion dollars in this? That's a billion dollar loss on the pro bottom line of this company. I don't think so. I want that money. It's mine. Fuck Black Lives Matter, which is going to be a, the, a great quote that's going to be taken out of this context of this podcast. <laughs> but, but no, no, no. The, we were, we were, yeah. we were, we were let that happen. Don't worry, man. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so the the and, and that might happen. I mean, there, I could see a judge depending on the position of the judge saying yeah man that's that's way too important and way too amorphous a thing and you're just doing it for pr and that that is decreasing the amount of money you're giving your shareholders and that's who we're doing all business for because under capitalism the point of business is to make money not to provide any services not to fulfill any needs but to make money if you happen to fulfill a need while, while making money cool but if you can make money and not fulfill any needs pff, do it because the whole point is to make money I get you, man. I get you. All right, listen, Kevin, I'm, I have so many questions I wanted to ask you. I, I, I'm conscious that we're, we're running yeah, way, I, way, way over time. I, I'm a blowhard. I, like, concision nah. is not my strong point. <laughs> Mate, I, I'm loving it. I'm not going to lie. If, if it's up to me, I'll ask you all these right now. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look through my notes, right? I'm going <laughs> to yeah. pick one question now sure. just to um, potentially end things on. But I'm going to ask you... Um, so... <sighs> let me let me phrase this right but mm -hmm. how would like sort of some of the ideology ideologies like surrounding society and the economy that you believe in how do you believe that could have sort of changed um what we're sort of going through how would you've navigated through this sort of pandemic which is so mm. i mean it's so unheard of kind of like how do you think that would have benefited society and how do you think that could have changed um, what we're going through and what potentially is about to come in terms of economically and maybe, I don't know, like individual families and this, that and the other? 
Yeah, I think uh, so. There's sort of two kinds of answers. One, the, the easy one, if you look to the what someone might call actually existing socialism, which again I would call sort of state capitalism in China, uh, the Indian state of Kerala, uh, and and in Cuba, uh, I would I would be more inclined to follow their lead than let's say, say the United States or Italy or some other countries um, or Sweden particularly. Um, you know that the the kind of both lockdowns social cohesion and um and people-centered policy making that does happen that does that does happen in those places despite what you know the socialism is evil kind of thing will the ideologies will tell you um there are a lot less cases in in those countries than you would imagine uh both based on the population and the fact that it started in china and didn't spread to the rest of china um, you know, that it was basically contained in Wuhan and it pretty to, through pretty dramatic measures, but measures designed to protect people from the widespread consequences of a pretty deadly virus. So, but, and, but that's kind of, that's a cop out because I don't, I wouldn't want to live in China under the, under the quote unquote communist regime. Yeah, fair, fair, fair. So, yeah. so in a cooperative society, in the, let's say a communist one where we don't have classes as the basis of society and we're organizing based on sort of freely associated labor in multi-dimensional democratic decision-making structures. I think two things. One, just as a general position, your society is going to be much more cohesive. The fact that there's, there is a democratic decision-making model baked into kind of everything means that debate and dialogue and honesty and, and reflexivity and like all of these kinds of important uh, abilities to be able to deal with problems and dynamic changes that happen specifically quickly, uh, I just think would prime you for being able to institute even potentially draconian measures that mm. you get widespread agreement on. I think one of the biggest issues that we saw is that if you have authoritarian structures in your society, you can lock shit down and you can keep it and you can keep the spread of a deadly pandemic uh, pretty well. If you live in democratic, if you live in democratic capitalist societies, I would say "quote unquote" democratic. If you live in capitalist societies, what te uh, what tends to happen, uh, like so, non-authoritarian capitalist societies, let's say, uh, is that you have not a lot of social cohesion. Alienation is very widespread. People are very suspicious of one another. There are rivalrous relationships from the class warfare to the racial warfare to the indigenous to the immigrant. I mean, there's just constant divvying up of people and divisions in this way that the society is just not cohesive at all. And this, the underlying system of capitalism benefits from all these distinctions, which is why they persist far beyond any kind of utility that they may have ever had. But they, um, the... So what you'd have is, a, is a, a society that would be able to react quicker, do so in a more, in a more, uh, in a more proactive way, and would also, uh, would also be able to change when, when new information was presented. So you'd have a trust of, of sort of scientific authorities because you know that they don't have any perverse incentives to come out with bad science. That, we've, you, that you would have if you don't have all the perverse incentives of the current economic system, none of the suspicion that you have of authority and power, because the authority and power is, is inherently legitimate because it's feder it's legitimately federated in a way that the bottom speaks to the top. And so, and so that when the top speaks to the bottom, the bottom says, all right, we have a two way street here. We get it. Like we need to listen to the people who know more than I do. And I think that, you know, as much as I am in some ways a freedom-loving American, 
I, I, that, that my freedom or nothing idea, it can really, it, it fucking kills people, you know, it's getting people, <laughs> it's getting people killed. And so like, while I understand it and I feel it and it's very, it's been very hard to do these kinds of this lockdown and stuff like that. It, mm. At the same time, I, I still have maybe the naive faith that, that my government doesn't have enough of an incentive to want me dead to, to screw it up as bad. Now I live in America, so you might debate whether, whether or not that's actually a legitimate statement. Maybe there is a sense that the government would prefer me dead. I, I am, if in case you probably, I'm sure that I'm sure that I'm sure that. Yeah. I mean, but I'm a white guy in my mid thirties. I think for in most, to most uh, people in authority, I don't present much of a threat until I start talking about worker ownership of the means of production and things like that. But um, I think the, uh, I, ultimately, what what the the whole goal of the the that I kind of see and I'm working in some ways my life towards is to just have a society that's more free, that's genuinely free, that's more democratic because I really genuinely believe in democracy and not just like fifty percent plus one, but like complex democratic ideas about how we can really like protect people's rights and interests, but but we can still do things, you know. And I think that we we can have new and interesting debates about what democracy really means and not read the fucking Federalist Papers or Edmund Burke or some bullshit from way long ago. Like, we don't need to read that kind of stuff. Let's have new debates about what democracy means to us now and how we can augment technology and all those kinds of things. Because again, I think, kind of tying it back to the very beginning, that technology is the big disruptive thing that's going to really end capitalism. And you have people like Andrew Yang in the United States talking about the need for a universal basic income because the machines are going to take all our jobs. And like part of me, I mean, what I literally develop every day is a machine lawyer because most of it is things a machine could do. And so, you know, there's just going to be this huge dynamics, like paradigm shift and uh, we're going to need to be ready for that. And, um, and I think that uh, we can use technology to make our lives freer, better, more, more solid, more cohesive, more cooperative, and ultimately just better. And so for me, the answer is, why not? Mate, you're, you're actually spot on because I was reading this book on Audible the other day um, by Henry, what's his name? Henry Hazlitt, right? Okay. Economics, economics in one lesson. And he was talking about, um, he was talking about technology and how people have a problem with that in terms of the economy. And then he started referring back to Adam Smith mm-hmm. and saying how basically technology has been improving ever since like the stone age or something. I mean, every time somebody didn't want to get their hands dirty or want to improve their sort of lifestyle and do that, they'd innovate. And innovation, I don't think that can get out of the window. I mean, I think yep. that's I think that's key. And yep. I get what the people are saying. They might be like, oh, we're going to lose our jobs because I can produce X amount of, I don't know, uh, whatever I'm doing in a factory as a worker, I can produce X, Y, and Z. But then there's other opportunities that come from that. Do you know what I mean? So it might be like you have to get rid of a certain sector, but then you upskill people and then you get a certain other demographic coming to go out and, yeah, I, I get that technology argument, but um, I don't. I don't see that as a challenge. I see that as a, um, a sort of progressive movement. Like it, it's part of society. Do you know what I mean, it's part of life. Yeah. Everything we do now, like using a mobile phone, like recording this podcast or what we're doing right now, it's all part of. Um, it's all part of technology, and I don't think you can begrudge that. Do you know what I mean, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, as somebody as who's like into technology and is working, you know, on technology and things like that, I, I think technology is the key to a future. I mean, there, there's the joking way of it's, you know, fully automated gay space communism, right? And so what we really, the, the fully automated part, I think is actually the prerequisite. I think that we, that like the, the sort of reinterpretation of Marx in the modern era is that we really need to get to a point where we have such automated potential and the use of machine learning and all this kind of stuff so that we can, we can take care of all the base level things without a lot of work. And so then you'd get to a point where like, ah, yeah, your basics are taken care of. You're not going to like die. You're not going to like lose your house if you lose your job, right? Because the job can probably be automated or we can find ways to do it. So where human beings are going to be more, should be more focused is on innovating, on making the technology better or developing new kinds of technology or augmenting the, what we're doing with the technology to make what we're doing more efficient or to do it on Mars or whatever. You know I mean? There's uh Technology is this amazing thing. The, the worry I have is that, that, you, that we're developing all of this kind of technology while retaining the perverse incentives of a, of a system that I don't think is fundamentally justified. And so it's one of those where it's like, we, we see how it uses violence ultimately to maintain itself. And it's kind of based on this exploitative relationship where the owner gets to kind of take more from the workers than he gives back. And there's this sort of fundamental inequality. And so we're developing all this technology while we maintain this fundamental inequality. And the technology is the thing that could actually bring us more equal. Cause I mean, we're not going to eliminate inequality. I don't think, but we're, we're, we can, we can find the natural inequalities and augment them so that people can really do what they're naturally gifted at. And we can decrease the artificial, um, you know, inequalities that are accidents of my birth and things like that. So, you know, thing, this is like gen, genuinely the more utopic idea of like a society that is colorblind. And, you know, it genuinely doesn't matter you're white, black, or, or male or female or from Mexico or f- from Australia. It doesn't matter, like, because everybody's got a fundamental basis from where they stand, which right. is which is theoretically the system we live in now, but it is sort of quite obviously not that everyone is starting from such higher positions. It's why lords in the UK still have all this capitalist power, you know, like that there's, there's, a, there's an unfair relationship between whose vagina you come out of and where you end up in the world. And that's not fair. And so like maybe another tagline for socialism is it shouldn't matter what vagina you come out of, you know? But I mean, for real, it, it, that, that the, the sort of all of the accidents of our birth are things that, it, that all the inequalities that come from that are unfair inequalities. And the biggest unfair inequality is being in a position where you already own the means of production. But, but thrusting yourself into a position where you do makes, like, p- puts you in that fundamental, you're just, you're just continuing the inequality. And like, you know, Amazon is like this, this amazing, beautiful example of the contradiction of capitalism because it, it has this immense poten- potential to ship everything and to, and to efficiently use, to efficiently transport technology and to get it to people's doorsteps so they don't have to go outside and stuff like that. Like, it's fucking amazing. It's super cool. It's better than Walmart. You know, you don't even have to go to the store. Wow, that's freaking awesome. But but, um, but it's done to, to, to increase and, and amass this incredible amount of wealth inequality by the, exploit, by the sort of obvious exploitation of the workers who do it, that it's like, why can't we have this part without this crap? And that's, in, in a nutshell, the world I want to build. I want to build a world that has all of the possibility and amazingness of something like Amazon, which is amazing, but doesn't necessitate exploiting its workers and amassing wealth in the hands of one little rich dude. 
to do it. I think that that's too high a cost for the technolo technological development, and we'd probably get more technology faster and better if we started cooperating instead of competing, because that creative destruction is destructive, and we should stop. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. That's some really insightful shit, man. Honestly, genuinely, like, that's some quality stuff. I'm not going to lie. Like I said earlier, I've, I've got so many questions I, had to, I wanted to ask you. Let's do a part um, two. That's my fault. Then we can oh, do like mate, a rapid fire. Mate, if you're down to do a part two, we would happily, uh, happily uh, have yeah, you back on. Honestly, we course. appreciate you. We appreciate you coming back. Um, we, we appreciate you coming on for this first time, honestly. Yeah. Um, but people listening out there, make sure you check out Sensible Socialist Podcast and also all things caught podcast because I've listened to both of them. They're, they're, they're fucking quality. All right. Yeah. Um, and then also check out this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll make sure well, to send people your way for sure, man. Hey, nice one, man. But we're going <laughs> to, we're, we're, we're going to get Kevin back on definitely because there's so many more questions I want to ask him because intuitive and intelligent guy, but yeah. All right, guys. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Kevin, thanks for joining us, mate. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to next time. Absolutely. All right, guys, stay safe. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.